Hi everyone, welcome to Overton Sisters, a social and cultural commentary podcast from Tupo Soviets with the audacity of an Instagram model, life coaching you. episode is very special because we have our very first guest, a prominent young voice from Istanbul. He is currently doing war studies and international relations at King's College London. He also writes articles for various magazines in English and Turkish. We're very pleased to welcome Derin Kocher. I'm very pleased to be here. Although I'm not from a post-Soviet country, I can understand some of the cultural divisions you're going through. It's okay. We're not, we're not striving to be like only post-Soviet. We also have Uh, more like we want to provide more immigrant perspectives we actually yeah. would be very pleased to have like more maybe outside of post-soviet um voices you know also turkey has very interesting relationship with russia even now so there's I mean, right now right now it's historically really interesting what what, what the oh, two yeah. countries are going through so yeah and i mean our religion is based off byzantine and you basically own everything that byzantine was so Yeah. There are a lot of sorry, sorry for Agia Sophia. Not my choice. <laughs> I actually wanted to ask what you think about it because, like, some people are okay with this. Some people were like, "Yo, what the hell? Like, it's not your heritage. Why you turn it into a mosque?" Um, I mean, we are probably going to talk about secularism in Turkey, so that that yeah, part right. actually is concerning uh, the Agia Sophia decision. Um, so, just 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 for for introduction, I can say that. Turning Hagia Sophia in, into uh, a museum in, in the beginning of the 20th century was uh, actually a symbolism to show like Turkey becoming more secular, uh, more diverse, more um, into diversity, uh, and more part of the Western uh, world. And now turning it into a mosque, like in uh, 90 years time, it actually shows the, con- the counter-revolution uh, basically we're going through right now. Yeah, I think it's also a certain way like a, na- a nation should treat a historical heritage that is like on its land. I feel like even like, uh, I'm not sure if there are any laws, like international laws on how to treat historical artifacts, even if there are nobody follows them. I don't know, like UK is full of stolen treasures, America too, then like Russia just eradicates and destroys everything it had historically. But I feel like it, it would be great just like for other nations. I know like for a lot of Russians, they specifically go to Istanbul to see the Byzantine stuff, to see the history because there's their religion and everything. Greeks do, though, I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm actually quite concerned with this because uh, a Norwegian friend texted me uh, after the uh, decision to turn it into a mosque. And then she basically asked, like, can we, like, if we visit Istanbul, can we visit Hagia Sophia from now on? And I was like, yes, you can, actually. I mean, turning it into a mosque doesn't doesn't mean uh, they're basically closing it to the outside world. Uh, but even this question becoming a legitimate question, Um, I see it as a shame, uh, just just to be um, just to be clear about it. Yeah, and a lot of mosaics are closed too, right? Like they at least didn't like cover up them with paint. They just 
covered it with cloth or something as i understood like i watched some yeah. video on that yeah so uh, it's complex yeah so i think i think this ties very well into our question for Darin. Uh, and do you think, well, this is quite an obvious one, but do you think Turkey is less secular now than when you were a child? Um, I think like we should look at this question from two different perspectives. One is um, the state's relationship with religion, which is what mostly secularism is. And the state was, when I, when I was born, uh, was a secular state. So uh, religious... Um, symbolism wasn't in the state. It was actually like quite um, radical uh, in, in secularism-wise because it was a bit close to the French understanding of secularism. So uh, you couldn't you couldn't see uh, people with headscarves in the parliament, uh, but the majority of people uh, of women in in Turkey actually wear uh, headscarves. So um, yeah, the secularism back then. Uh, was quite radical, was quite powerful, and was quite respected back then. And right now, the state um, isn't as secular uh, as it was, and that's quite clear. And Hagia Sophia is uh, only one of the examples. Uh, you, you're seeing some uh, religious groups uh, inside bureaucracy gaining power. I mean, one uh, in 2016 tried to uh, make a coup in the country, for God's sake. So. You can, you can you you you're not gonna have this in a secular country like a, a religious sect trying to overturn uh, the elected government. So that's being far away from secularism. But the tragedy is, even after 2016, when they saw uh, the government saw uh, a religious group that they were in coalition with, basically for for uh, decades, uh, try to overturn the democratically elected um, officials by a coup, even after that, uh, they didn't try to secularize the bureaucracy. Um, and we are still seeing some of the religious sects like uh, gaining power inside, inside the state uh, mechanism, basically. And the second thing is, the second perspective is uh, the people. So were the people mm -hmm. as religious as today, uh, like 20 years ago? It's it's quite hard to measure it, of course. Uh, but as I said, like the people's relationship with politics, like uh, the conservatives' relationship with politics, was problematic because they weren't seeing like uh, people like them uh, in politics uh, most of the time. Let's say, uh, mm -hmm. and the headscarf uh, thing was actually quite quite a big discussion in Turkey. Uh, so. Those are now resolved, but uh, something some people think like because of the um, government, the people are getting more religious as well. I'm not quite sure if that's a correct uh, assessment of what's going on. And the as main reason is as a, a response, response yeah. as a response, they're they're thinking like uh, because of how how the country is being ruled, people are going to get more and more conservative. Uh, but I'm not sure if that's true because. I mean, we are seeing uh, a rapid um, urbanization in basically throughout the world, right? Uh, Turkey is living through this like four or five times faster than the rest of the world. So what we're seeing is basically big uh, metropoles being like, like Istanbul, big metropoles are being uh, established basically and people are moving to those metropoles. And if you are 
uh, if you're born in a metropole and you have a diverse uh, neighborhood, basically, and you, you see things from a different perspective than your parents did, um, I think your relationship with religion is becoming much more complicated than your parents' uh, relationship with it. So what we're seeing is, I think there is a new generation, uh, an important amount of the new generation is being raised with conservative values. They hold conservative values, but in life practices, uh, they're not so different from people like myself, which I consider myself quite quite secular, uh, or people like basically we are being some kind of uh, equalized in social terms uh, in the city, mm-hmm. in, in those big cities. But people who move to metropoles, it's it's also certain part of society with certain privileges, right? Like it's not necessarily an opportunity available to everyone. Or, well, you expect that, but Istanbul is a city with eighteen million people in a country which is eighty million people, so it's quite big. Um, the problem with this being that big is you're seeing um, ghettos being established. Not in the way that you might expect, like you, you might see in some Latin American uh, horror movies and crime <laughs> movies. Yeah, that's not happening. That's not happening. Uh, but for instance, like if you go to a neighborhood, like a ghetto uh, in Istanbul, let's say, uh, you're going to see people from a city other than Istanbul just move there, like the same neighborhood. They're trying to uh, maintain their relationships with their community. They're trying to mm-hmm. be helpful to their community, basically. and But that makes um, their relationship with the metropole, the rest of the metropole, a bit problematic because, uh, I mean, it is basically like you're living in London, but you're not leaving uh, your postcode. So that's that's not living in London most of the time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's that's also happening in, in, in Turkey. Uh, but I, I, I don't think like still uh, people go out from their neighborhoods. People have friends from other neighborhoods. People get people get to know uh, others from those neighborhoods. So that diversifies the thinking of the new generation. But this is something that happens to a lot of like megapolises, ma- massive cities. Like this is mm-hmm. London too, and Moscow too. Like even Milano, I see it very like divided, and people just living in their very small communes sometimes, but not everyone too. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure I can relate to any of that. So. Uh, well, Latvia is like minor. Micro. It is a commune. It is a commune. Yeah. <laughs> a yeah. modern ideal. That's my dream. Maybe I will move to Latvia for that. Tired of big city life. I wanted to ask about Ethos. Oh, the series. The series. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wait, so, wait. so we also need to like a little bit introduce it for those who haven't watched it or don't know what it even is, right? So it is a Turkish TV show that in, that is uh, now on Netflix uh, under the name of Ethos. But the original name is what was it? Bir? No, I'm not going to pronounce it. Let's pronounce it. It's 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 Bir Başkadır. Yeah, the translation is a different one. Is understood, right? Yeah, the translation is. Um, something like quite different. It comes, it comes, it comes from a, a Turkish song which basically says, um, "My hometown is so different," uh, mm. in a in a positive sense. It, it it means like it's 
special. quite different from, from quite special from those you might like uh, see as as metropoles or as countries, but my country mm-hmm. is is quite different from them, and uh, they're using this Birbashka, uh, they're the quite different part of the song to show it, basically in the show that uh, in the series that people inside the country inside Turkey are so disconnected from one another. They live in uh, different worlds. They live in different value systems, basically. So they're quite different from one another, even inside uh, Turkey. Is it the one at the end of every episode? They have old recordings no, it's there, or we, or but is it included? They didn't include the song itself. I, I they think didn't this is the first the time itself. I hear about it. Oh, that's but they that's some insight. That's thank you. It's very interesting insight. I feel like it adds on understanding of the show. Um, I think I think if they used I think if they used the song um, the core message that contradicts with the song actually um, was was going to be exposed because the song the song doesn't talk about diversity or different value system or all those differences inside Turkey but it basically says Turkey is quite different. Mm, fair point. Fair point indeed. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, so Ethos. Okay, so Ethos. Uh, to understand Turkey, I think it's a uh, first of all, it's quite good storytelling, right? So uh, yeah, it's, it's quite joyful, it. yeah, quite joyful to watch it. Sometimes it's really funny, sometimes it's really tragic. So you you're gonna see uh, a, a good storytelling basically, and I think um, those stories are quite important to understand what's going on in any country, not just in Turkey. Uh, this one is especially like quite. Uh, unique uh, to the country, to, to, to Turkey. Uh, but still, I mean, it was John, John Didion. She basically says, uh, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. So I'm saying um, ethos is a story to understand Turkey and what's going on inside the country. Uh, but first thing to remember is uh, the script of the show, I think, is um, not as contemporary as the show. I think it waited uh, in, in the shelves for, 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 I think, a decade, something like that. And what you're seeing is uh, the show demonstrates the emotional disconnectedness of um, the secular part of Turkey, the conservative part of Turkey, the ultranationalists, the Kurdish, uh, and how they cannot basically form um, a platform, uh, some, something to share, something to have in common. And it shows that like masterfully and uh just if you uh look at it it's quite critical of the secular part because the the writer of the series the the director he is coming from the secular side and he knows he he sees how disconnected they are from the conservative part of the country for those who haven't watched it, maybe we can uh, tell a little bit of the plot because I realized we're like straight up analyzing and talking about the background yeah. without actually yeah, right. mentioning. So we have like main characters. Actually, like there's no single main character, right? We have Mariam who comes from more um, conservative background. She wears headscarf and she like. Uh, help me here. <laughs> um, she she keeps painting, yeah. so she goes to see a therapist. Yeah, um, Perry, yeah, if, then... if I remember. And the therapist, she's more contemporary woman. She works in a psychiatric hospital, as understood. Yeah. 
so and apparently she has some kind of a bias towards more conservative side like she has her internalized biases due to her own reasons uh, I, I loved how it sh- um, how the show portrayed it in some moments especially when she accidentally calls Miriam uh, the name of her housekeeper as I understood yeah like this is that yeah there was this moment and uh like Perry herself the psychiatrist she was like oh what was that why did I call her this and like she has some realization yeah so we have uh, a mentor of hers we have psychotherapist herself um psychiatrist excuse me but she practices psychotherapy uh we have Miriam main character and Miriam works in Mr. Sinan's house who is just a dude (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with his own background but for for like for most of the episodes he's just there connecting all the three women right like i'm trying to avoid spoilers here for those who haven't watched it yet um no but i think what was his mr sinan mr sinan he was yeah. just like it was. I found it quite funny. It was very absurd that like all of these women are in love with the same guy. I, I think mean, like it's a part he's good looking though. Like he's all right. Why? No, he's <laughs> such a boring person. Did you see when he's having like conversations he with is the, the girls who are over? He is boring. It's like, yeah. Are you gonna stay yeah. over? Actually, actually, his character became uh, a huge meme in the country in, in Turkey uh, <laughs> because because of the because of the line she tells like basically to every woman. Are you gonna stay tonight? So when because of when because of the pandemic lockdown started again, they had like a curfew at eight or nine, something like that. And the meme the meme the meme went, uh, oh you're gonna you're gonna stay because it's already past nine. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, but I think that that character also uh shows like when you look at the relationship with his mother, um how basically um, the the next generation was disconnected from from uh, the previous generation, the generation from of uh, their parents. Basically, it shows that as well. So he comes he comes from a conservative family, but he's not a conservative at all. And his relationship with Mariam, the main character, in a way, the main character who uh, is the maid actually, like to Mr. Sinan. It's so weirdly, um, is, but well done. Yeah. Yeah. When yeah. all the points come together, you just sit there being like, "Oh my god, what?" Like, ah, uh, like you, uh, the realization just comes in, and it's uh, overwhelming, really. Yes. Yeah, and and the um, mentor of the psychiatrist uh, name is Gulbin, and she mm-hmm. actually represents the secular Kurdish um, faction of country, basically. Uh, that 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 population uh, her story is very interesting too because she she's not that conservative herself she doesn't like of her beliefs but at the same time she works as a like a position you would say to Perry and her biases because she herself i loved how they introduced kurdish issue into the tv show like it's not just uh secular versus more conservative uh Muslim communities, but it's also like Kurdish is- issue. Like I love that and her family and the dynamic that they have and her relationship with her sister, yeah. which is very. Uh, Actually, that that part sharp. of the plot, uh, that part of the plot is quite revolutionary in Turkish uh, cinema and contemporary ser- mm-hmm. series. Maybe we can say 
because it's it's a quite difficult subject uh, to go through uh, mm-hmm. in the country because of the terrorism that is going through and because of the military operations the government is uh, doing like to, to, it's very nowadays 2015. Yeah. It's very really nowadays issues. It's actually not a nowadays issues because it's as old as Turkey. Um, <laughs> the problems with the Kurdish identity and the Kurdish language and um, all of the things that basically you're seeing, the economic inequalities, the social inequalities and all that um, wasn't was not solved throughout the um, 97, 96 years of um, modern Turkey, basically. Mm-hmm. So it's not a nowadays issues, uh, but it's still contemporary. Unfortunately, it's still contemporary. And I think it's quite a shame for a country to not be able to solve an identity crisis going on for such a long time. Uh, and just just to be sure, like it's a terrorism issue as well. So I'm not ignoring that part, but terrorism does not come from out of a blue. So mostly uh, they, they, they have some, some base. Uh, and that base should be defeated uh, as much as terrorism should be defeated as well. And th- th- this this only can be done um, with equaling uh, the identities in the country, basically. Yeah, this point and is this pretty controversial. Yeah. Very controversial and hard to resolve. Um, yeah. But would you say that Ethos portrayed situation accurately? Or, like you said, it's a little bit outdated. Um, I think it's, it's quite accurate. Uh, to understand like the identities in, in the country, uh, I think it, it does a very very well job. Um, the the fact that it's a bit old, the script is a bit old. Um, it only affects how you portray some of those characters. So um, in the conservative space, maybe we can say uh, they were quite critical to the to the show, mm-hmm. um, and the reason is they are being portrayed as this like. Um, economically really underclass um, part of society um, which is not all too accurate because like in the 20 years of Erdogan's uh, governance um, those parts have gained uh, some power uh, but it would not be fair to say um, his policies and his government made life uh, easier for all the conservatives uh, some of them uh, are pretty well off. Um, some figures got really rich, uh, and you know them. And I don't think conservatives really like them, because um, it's um, it's a quite uh, good argument to say the government didn't basically had an equalizing policy toward the conservatives, but they had they they gave some leverage uh, to. Some, mm-hmm. the few, some, the few uh, of the conservatives. So, uh, but still, they didn't think it was accurate to represent the whole conservative uh, situation as this economically yeah. really uh, working class people. I got this. They're not. Some of them are, are not. I got this image that like some parts were a little bit hyperbolized. It's also like very, like I understand that it is partially made to like portray the story, to describe the situation, but the like the connections there that you're like financially well off you're more you know uh, i don't know can i say westernized or like more like l- less uh i guess so like there was this 
like economical and uh, ethnical division and then you know, like financial uh, and like social demographics, you know, division on that front too. And as if like no intermediate space was provided, like as if there are only two sides. The daughter of Hodja, like she kind of provides this alternative, but overall there's this massive division and like from... Yeah. Like, that I have like some of them have families with more complex backgrounds like more diverse backgrounds too and like complex stories and show just doesn't portray that that well and okay, so that's that's a quite legitimate uh, criticism of the series and I completely agree with that like uh, I think part of the problem is that's that's not a problem for the country I think but it's a problem for the series the country is really complex and you have so many stereotypes and you have so many identity issues and economic issues and they all, all some overlap. So it's, uh, if you try to portray like every uh, demographic of the country, you're going to basically have some cartoon characters in the series as well. And you okay. see some, some cartoon characters in the series. But the point you made about Hoja's daughter, I think her name was um, Hyrenissa. If, mm-hmm. I'm, if I'm not mistaken, uh, mm-hmm. she is, she, like, the portrayal of her character is really important to understand the, the coming generation in the Turkey, which I talked about, like, in, in the beginning. She actually represents how the big city um, changes um, the, the next generation, how, how they're disconnected, basically, from their parents. So, um... I think it's not portrayed like as well how the value system for Hyrenissa, uh, how how it came to be. So we see her as a um, the daughter of a really conservative um, religious man, being non not religious at all, not conservative at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's not a that's that's probably not a fair um, representation of of the demographic we are talking about. But the part that basically shows in in her daily life, in her daily practices, she is not conservative at all. She is not like her parents at all. And that's that's quite true for a large uh, part of the conservative population right now, the the, the youth Mm -hmm. conservative population right now. So I think understanding Hyrenissa's character um, basically gives the winning hand to the politicians. I mean, who can... Who can win? Hyrenissa will win uh, some elections, we can say. Oh, wow. I haven't even thought about the yeah. consequences it might have. Indeed. And they're, yeah, not, uh, they're not as political as their parents. They don't have yeah. as much ideological uh, point of views as their parents. They're not a missionary of, a, of an uh, ideology. They, they, they don't see themselves as that. They're not as politically uh, involved uh, as some other parts of the country. Uh, so it's really hard to understand um, what their values are based on and understand what they're expecting, basically, uh, from the politics of the country. Mm-hmm. So right now, um, when we look at the polls, I mean, it's hard to make it a clear uh, distinction about who is who, basically, uh, in the polls, but it's quite actually clear that those citizens are in the gray gray area they're not partisans they're 
they're waiting to be com- uh, basically um, radicalized. Not radicalized. <laughs> I, I, I won't be radicalized. Not to be influenced. To to be influenced, basically. Yeah, well, that's an interesting yeah. point. Would you say the youth is indeed less political? Oh, Usually, I feel uh, like the global tendency is that youth is seen, like at least Gen Z, is seen as this like more radicalized, more political. But at the same time, maybe just like it feels this way because they're more vocal on social media or something. Maybe that's the image that happens. But I mean, if you're on Turkish Twitter, most of the people are quite young, <laughs> so that's not that's not different from the world at all. But I think the main difference is Turkey is quite young. Uh, compared to other uh, other nations, so Turkey is uh, probably like approximately ten years younger than uh, Britain uh, in general. So it's really hard. Like, who who is the young Walter you have in mind? <laughs> so some of some some part of the younger generation, um, they are trying to be uh, apolitical, but it's quite difficult to stay apolitical in Turkey because I mean if you're in Britain politics does influence your life but it's not the main uh, point of uh, mm-hmm. influence mm-hmm. maybe but in Turkey I mean politics is not just about the economy or it's not just about your identity or it's not just about your values but all of the above so yeah. when when you see the government's I don't know, like use this populist rhetoric uh, towards maybe your values, maybe your uh, worldview, then you 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 get politicized basically because it becomes a struggle for your life, a struggle for your way of life, basically. So, for instance, like for secular for seculars in in Turkey, they drink uh, alcohol, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But right now, the taxation of alcohol is basically it's very uh, high. yeah it's dramatically yeah. high so uh, this this is an influence on the way of life of people i mean uh in the, in the last months when the economic crisis and the lockdown and all that like came together uh we saw a lot of people dying because of trying to like make their own drinks at home oh like my from, God. from raw materials oh no you, you see people getting blind because of that so like you you see in turkey you see how politics is about your life is about your way of life is about your values and how they can be radicalized or how they can be ignored and all that so i'm i i won't say uh the turkish youth is apolitical or not engaged in politics but the some part of this population is not as into politics as others, mm-hmm. you can say. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. A whole different dynamic within the country. Yeah. Compared to global. It's one. really hard to understand the country. I mean, I'm from Turkey. I don't understand it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's also depending on the place, uh, on the city, big city, smaller cities. Like the dynamics will be different. And we're talking about like median here. So media is not always the representative. And, and also like the disconnectedness uh, that is represented in the series Ethos. Mm-hmm. Uh, it actually makes a good point about how we, how I, for example, cannot understand the whole of the country. Because as a child, I was a part of a bubble, right? I was a part of 
one of the cartoon characters in in the series. So you you're not having uh, a, a, an intellectual platform basically to meet with the other parts of the country. So if you cannot share their lives, share their stories, and get to know them, it's quite hard to understand them, right? Mm-hmm. So in in this regard, Eidos is quite good for the country as well, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Did you relate to the character of Hyanisa? How to pronounce her name right? Hyanisa, or just daughter. I don't know, like, it's a very weird, relatable point to find, but uh, I don't know, I feel like every immigrant kid or anybody who ever went, like, from a small town to study in the big city or, like, in our case, to the big other countries, you know, like, other community, like, your community will be like, oh, yeah, you went to study there and you got, like, so liberal, it's because they brainwashed you, you know, like, this big city life is affecting you, disrupting your connection with your roots and everything. Like, I personally get a lot of that um <laughs> i get some some part of it as well but um, i mean i was born in istanbul and raised in istanbul and my parents are from istanbul so mm-hmm. um that's a and they're, they're they're not like really conservative yeah. um some some i mean when you go back uh, as in generations go to the older generations they eventually become more conservative mm-hmm. um some relatives of mine can be seen like quite conservative uh, as well, but it doesn't mean like I was raised um, in the same bubble as Hyunisa's character was raised in this yeah, really conservative bubble, uh, and I wasn't raised in a small city, so I was raised in Istanbul. Uh, but I think the main difference, uh, the, the the main let's say criticism I get um, from my family and those like close to them. When you go to London, you when I'm in London, I'm, I'm in London. So uh, when I'm here, I my um, understanding of liberalism or my understanding of what it means to be Western is quite different from mm-hmm. their understandings, even though they're the Western um, part of the country. So mm-hmm. um, I think that that makes that also makes it quite different because even though they're secular and they're um, more um, open to the Western ideas, they have some conservative feelings uh, in, inside them. So, uh, yeah, I get your point about that. So your your perception of conservatism changed too, right? Like a little bit how the terms varied. Because like conservative in Europe is one thing, conservative in America is another thing, conservative in Turkey or like Russia, probably like a whole third thing. It um, changed dramatically. I mean, when you're talking about conservatism in, in the UK you're basically talking about classical liberalism and classical um, English values and uh, all, all, all those. Um, but when you go to, to Turkey, uh, the conservatism there is, is quite different from, from conservatism you, you explore like throughout Europe. You're not talking about those, those liberal uh, ideas or those um, traditionally Western um, symbols basically you have a more religious tendency a more identity-based mm-hmm. uh conservatism and to be honest they're completely different from one another i want 
wanted to also ask a more informal question. Yeah. Uh, if that's okay. About the Russian wifey trope oh my God. in Turkey. Have you experienced it? Or is that not an Istanbul thing? Oh, it's well, very what much do you mean by that? Thing, no? What do you mean by that? <laughs> Which part exactly? <laughs> well, what, what do you mean by the Russian uh, wifey trope? Wifey. Well, Maria can actually explain that. Yeah, it's a Russian, Russian here. <laughs> no, I think it's very Russia-Turkey relations kind of thing. A lot of Russians... Uh, there's this big meme that uh, Turks like want a Russian wifey, but then Russians are all, all also like a f- Russian women sometimes like straight up fetishize Southern features and be like, oh my God, those Turkish men so hot. And um, I know that in Istanbul and generally in Turkey, in Antalya specifically too, there are like whole communities of Russians and like there's like Russian community, there's Russian wifey that married Turks community. There's like um, whole community. I mean, to, to be to be to be completely honest, uh, Russian woman basically means beautiful woman in Turkish language. I know. So too. if you see, if you if you want to compliment, if you want to compliment compliment someone, don't don't say this to to to, to her face. But if you're like talking uh, about someone and how beautiful they are, some people might say they are like Russians or she is like a Russian. Oh, even Girl? to this extent. Yeah. Yeah, 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 oh yeah. God. You have you have that stereotype in Turkey. It's fair to say that. I knew, about but I didn't time. know. I didn't know they had like the 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 Russian had also a stereotype of Turkish men. I didn't well, have any idea about that. Maybe that's my perception because I know, like, I follow way too many Russian wifeys on Instagram because, like, yeah. they're kind of part of immigration like immigrant community and everything but also they're just like really fun to look at some of them are very stereotypical kind of remind me of british svetas but like in turkey uh you know like like this trophy russian wife that's like nails done uh, some wearing some shuba uh, very light-headed but some of them like genuinely obsessed with like history and language and like genuinely love it um yeah but you were telling me about this uh, thousand and one night Oh, uh, what was it? The photo shoot? Oh my God. No, the, the, yeah, the reason why I, I say like Turkish men are fetishized is because not, not just Turkish men, uh, a lot of people say, oh, like you see those foreigners, like they get the Russian trophy vice. But at the same time, like I look at those blogs of Russian wives and they straight up fetishize uh, other nationalities and men being like, oh my God, Arabian Nights, like my personal Arabian fairy tale. Like they, the names of the blogs are so bizarre. Some of the posts, like how they target it is just, dear Lord, I'm, I'm ashamed, but I'm also very entertained. Um, yeah. <laughs> the reason why it is so close to me also, because I'm like, I'm a former Russian wifey, Turk, no, that's, um, Allowed to say, but I had some. Ex- I had some experience, way too much for my years. I would say, uh, yes. Yeah, so I guess the stereotype just kind of. I've been exposed to it way too much. That's kind of yeah. funny how it formed. It's fair to say there is the stereotype. Um, I'm not quite sure about the the, the Russian wifeies, like in uh, in in the country. I'm not as um, as involved in the cyberspace of this <laughs> internet good for you good for you as, as you are so i'm 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 a bit shocked that it's uh it, it's a it's a phenomenon basically really? uh i'm i'm a bit shocked but i mean knowing the stereotype and knowing the people that are getting rich in the country 
uh, in, the, in the last couple of decades, I can I could have made a guess. <laughs> Yeah. Well, Russia and Turkey always had like very special relationship. Now it's even yeah. All countries Russia. closed. All Russians go to the seaside in Turkey. You know, my mom went there, so all my friends. Yeah, first, there. first tourism. Then you have the S four hundreds. Yeah, yeah. Also, we have very interesting relationship with like some Muslim Caucasian uh, nations. And generally, some like Muslims in Russia very often either dream of moving to Turkey and like straight up move to Turkey or marry Turkish people because they want to live in a country where they can be like, um, like basically be Muslim and free, something like this. Because like in, in post-Soviet country, it's not as easy and there's like more stigma. Uh, and generally, like as someone who was brought up in non-Muslim family, like I, I can't say that we're like straight up secular. My mom is pretty like religious she's a believer she's russian orthodox but i've been exposed to so much bias and hate towards muslim communities so then when i hear about some people you know going even from chechnya like going to live in turkey i'm like yeah like good for them i understand why russians indeed have this um bias so i guess this also forms that stereotype um, but it's kind well, of it does. uh some some of the people that are coming not probably from directly russia but um, ex-Soviet countries, maybe we can say, ex-Soviet Turkic countries, um, they actually form an important, let's not say important, but a decisive, like a, a big part of a, uh, of some undocumented workers, basically, oh. uh, in Turkey. Yeah, they come, work, and they sometimes go back, they sometimes stay, um, so yeah, it's also like a this this is also like an economic phenomenon um, in the country as well. Yeah, and you have pretty big proportion of Uzbek people too, right? Compared yeah, to other yeah. countries. Um, yeah, that's an interesting thing. I understand how it came to be, but um, yeah, considering that yeah, like I- in European countries, it is Turkish workers often that happen to be like it just how this whole dynamic exists between the countries it's i think it also shows like turkey's basically like the location of the country like the geography of the country is basically forming uh a bridge both like from east to west and from south to north so you have all all those kinds of people like going through turkey at least they they may not be staying in Turkey. They may, uh, but sometimes they do come uh, to Turkey. And something like really unfortunate about the country is, as we talked about, like the Hagia Sophia and the culture wars and all that. Um, I mean, the Ottomans uh, had an important, like, uh, demographically large population of Christians, right? And right now, mm-hmm. Turkey Turkey has like one of the least percentage of non-Muslim uh, people living in the country. There were some events in history that allowed that, yes. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But it's it's quite unfortunate. It didn't, like, uh, it, it's not only a factor of uh, the wars and all, the First World War and the Balkans War and mm-hmm. uh, other wars that happened with Turkey, inside Turkey, or Turkey involved in them, uh, but actually, like, the state's policies uh, toward uh, the non-Muslim uh, community, like throughout decades, it's dramatic that we are not as diverse as we once were. Yeah, and 
it, it's usually considered like a massive advantage of Ottoman Empire. Usually when like we talk about Ottoman Empire, it's always brought up as like this good thing that like existed. It's very painful to lose it now. But you said you called it culture wars. Like you, you would yeah. use this term, you would call it straight up culture wars, not just like certain dynamics and changes. No, it's it's a culture war. It's a it's a it's a culture war that is fueling uh really dark kind of politics in the mm-hmm. country. It's the politics that is that that the president uh, is using uh, a lot of the times. I mean, in the last elections in 2019, the local elections, um, because of the uh, election system we have in the country, we have alliances among parties. Mm-hmm. And we have basically two alliances. One is the ruling party and the ultra-nationalist party together. And one is the opposing parties came together. And uh, Erdogan and Erdogan's campaign called uh, basically the opposition ally alliance as the alliance of traitors, basically. So uh, whenever there is whenever uh, there is an issue about culture, a cultural issue, let's say LGBT rights, let's say I don't know some some really liberal uh, like in in terms of in Turkey's politics mm-hmm. liberal perspectives. Um, Erdogan and and his alliance uses that to basically show to the people that those uh, opposition figures are disconnected from your values, and I, and not me but Erdogan, represent the main <laughs> the, the real the real population the real Turkey. He says that's the argument. That's the argument. Well, he once said uh, there is a conflict among myself and of a country, which doesn't like, which isn't in diplomatic terms a really good way to put uh, a conflict you have with a nation. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but but he does use this uh, cultural difference uh, in the country to basically divide the country into. Uh, some demographic areas and to maintain his popularity among his people. Yeah. Straight up emotional manipulation. We talked about it in previous episodes, actually. How it's it's always these kind of issues that are used to manipulate people because people will react, and you can always say, "Oh, people do react in the West, and this like we need to unite, we need to reconnect with our history." And of course, people are gonna react emotionally, like all people, no matter what side of the discourse you stand on. Yeah, but it's a nasty thing too, because like the fact that this information, like those issues, as you said, like it can be like a refugee crisis or maybe like LGBT rights. It's always like it's never one sided, uh, like no, not even like double sided discourse. There's always like, oh, yeah, let's do this, but maybe not to this extreme. And there you can always uh, put yourself against the magical west you know where everything like mm-hmm. look at them how they how it affected them uh, but, how decadent uh, yeah. yeah yeah the anti-west and, and, and like those those cultural uh, cultural differences or the culture war that, that it that those rhetoric triggers actually like most of them have some historical backgrounds i mean erdogan didn't create uh, a new reality for himself only, he 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 rose like he he rose to power 
in a reality. He didn't have like the mm -hmm. media uh, power of uh, right now, the contemporary media power he has right now, or the influence in the judiciary or influence in bureaucracy and all that. I mean, right now he has all of this. But when he rose to power, he didn't have any of that. He only had the argument that the conservative, uh, like two, two arguments. First, economy wasn't crumbled and people were looking for an alternative. And the second thing is, second thing was, the conservative people um, were bullied, were not represented by the political establishment for, for, for years. I mean, there was a, uh, a, a post-modern coup, we say, uh, in 1996, which basically, like, the, the military didn't uh, took, took, took the power, but they made uh, a government resign, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, like, all of this comes from, and military is uh, historically a, a secular establishment in, in Turkey. So all of this come together, uh, he had, like, a, uh, an argument within the cultural uh, divisions in the country. But right now, he doesn't have those arguments because he he was in power like since uh, two thousand and two, and he 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 changed he changed the country he changed the power relations within the country and all that. So all those um, identity based uh, arguments he had back then seems irrelevant right now, but still he uses those arguments to uh, demonize the opposition to. I mean, to basically turn people's heads from the real problems Turkey is going through right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, one third of the country is unemployed. This is, this is the main issue of politics, right? I mean, this, this, this has to be the focus right now. These people are basically going hungry in the country. And rather than talking about this, he cannot solve this. So what he does is uh, turn to the cultural or... Uh, identity-based politics uh, he he understands best and uses, actually, best. So do you think there is a real opposition to him? There is real opposition to him. I mean, think about it. 90% uh, of the media is basically owned um, by people really close to Erdogan. 90% of the media. They're not critical. They're not... They're not doing journalism, they're doing the PR work. So, 90%. Uh, and the other 10%, they get radicalized as well. So, people uh, people like voting for Erdogan are not reading uh, most of the other papers or, or TV networks, watching mm -hmm. TV networks, etc. Uh, he has a big influence uh, in the judiciary. You have one uh, prominent opposition figure in jail like five years, since, mm -hmm. since five years still in jail you have the civil society basically went to shrambles like you i mean they arrested some of the civil society leaders uh most of them are not involved anymore even though they got released and all that they're they're scared basically uh, rightfully they're scared mm -hmm. um and like uh, you don't have all those things but 50 percent of the people are still against Erdogan. I, I find this quite quite amusing to see because, I mean, if you have all this power, you have all the ability to influence people, right? And he cannot influence the 50% that is opposing him since 10 years' time. Yeah. They, hmm. The opposition is still 
fighting, uh, is still trying to win influence, and I, in my opinion, is getting uh, more and more better over time because they're realizing that the culture war um, that is being maintained by the President Erdogan is not serving them well mm-hmm. because the part that they are being forced to represent is not the majority. It's definitely not the majority. So uh, in 2019 mayoral elections, the opposition won actually like the, I think 65% of the Turkish economy, those cities that represent yes, the 65%. And Istanbul is one of them. And Istanbul is quite significant for Erdogan because it's where it all started for Erdogan. He became the mayor of Istanbul. And in 2019, uh, Ekrem Amolu, the opposition's candidate, uh, won Istanbul twice basically, in two months, because first he won, um, the difference uh, in the election was really small, and Erdogan said, I'm not finding this uh, representable, so let's repeat the elections again, and then he multiplied uh, his... um, his, uh, Reminds me of something, let's recount the votes... Sure. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, let's re- I mean, it reminds me of Trump as well. But the difference with the U.S. No, don't and- say the name. I didn't say I was thinking. Oh, okay, about okay. Trump. The orange, the orange, mo- uh, the orange monster that is becoming irrelevant every day. Uh. <laughs> the difference uh, between those two leaders that I'm not saying one the name, <laughs> one of the names of. The difference is uh, Trump is in America, right? And he screams, yeah, he screams recount and all this, and he he has nothing. He he lost, and that's it. But in in Turkey, uh, Erdogan's party lost, but they basically forced the country to another Mm -hmm. election. And by the way, Imamoglu won that election as well. And so... The political uh, story of Erdogan, which began in Istanbul, right now he lost uh, his story's beginning. So, uh, in my opinion, this um, shows how realistic uh, the opposition came to be. Uh, Imamoglu was not a, a secular uh, stereotype in the country. He was he 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 was about identities. Maybe we can say. He embraced them all. He embraced all the identities that we have in the country. And he basically made everyday arguments about politics. I mean, the food you have to deliver to people. Diversity. For instance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and he won. And right now we are seeing the opposition being uh, much more concerned with everyday people, like people's problems they face every day, uh, daily problems, daily issues. And we are actually seeing uh, two leaders inside Erdogan's party quitted the party and established their own political parties. So we are seeing this as well. Also so, sends a powerful uh, message to the people. It does send a powerful message, yeah. yeah. And they are not a part of the cultural uh, war Erdogan is trying to establish because they were a part like, of, mm-hmm. uh, of the party of Erdogan, basically. So, yeah, maybe so, we can say there is a real opposition and they have uh, a good case uh, to overthrow 
That's admirable. Even like despite all the years that Erdogan Bill was in and still is in power, like because for me, like I, I don't know, I uh, I usually uh, with Turkish people often joke like, oh yeah, imagine ha- seeing another president in your country couldn't be me, you know, was born he was still there, like uh, we are basically living most of our lives seeing the same face in the same place. That's yeah like, personally i don't remember like any other leader other than erdogan in power yeah and that's like practically that's my lifetime all young people grew up with the same face you know seeing the same face every year which is bizarre like every birthday you celebrate it and you're like oh yes yeah, still the same president nothing new and but usually it makes like um when the leader, when the president is in power for so long, usually every year it becomes harder and harder for opposition to do anything because at this point it's not like one person, it is the whole system. Uh, and, yeah. you know, not, not only like people's opinions and everything, it's also, um, you know, every system in the country gets insanely corrupt. So even if opposition comes in power, like, it will take eternity to reverse all those effects. And seeing what's happening in Turkey, it's kind of, I don't know, inspiring, admiring. Like I'm, I'm glad that people, despite everything, still stand. I mean, yeah, uh, we are living, we are living through history. That's that's obvious. Um, I think Turkey can also make a case for the world on how to defeat populism as well. So this, this, the, the mayoral election I talked about. Uh, is a concrete example of populism being defeated uh, electorally. That's that's really? quite huge as well. And if the same thing happens for Erdogan, yeah, that's that's the second second win in the anti-populist uh, opposition. Sounds optimistic. And uh, talking about other good things, yeah, we wanted to bring out just the best things about Turkey. The best things about Turkey, well. I think those things that uh, we talked about, like those things that make um, politics so difficult in Turkey or understanding so understanding Turkey so difficult, is actually uh, what makes Turkey uh, really lovable. All the diversity, all the difference uh, of identities you have in the country, and the other thing I'm really amazed by, and as you as you can see, the Turkish people. Are not giving up on hope mm-hmm. and that's that's a quite big thing because being ruled by the same government for 20 years and the last 10 years is a story of authoritarianism getting more authoritarian every day maintaining mm-hmm. hope uh in this despite of all the things that we're living through i think it's a huge um sign of resilience for our uh identity let's say I admire those two things, basically. And still, uh, I mean, if you come to Istanbul, I think you, you, you don't have a chance to not to love it. Oh, I really <laughs> want to go there. Uh, yeah. I've never been to Turkey, so... At I all. have. At all. And wait. Have you? At all. Never. You're kidding me. How? No. That's so I'm weird. Not yeah, yeah, you're not Russian because for me, like every summer, there's like only so many countries I can go to. There's like always if we need to go to the seaside, it's Turkey, Greece, or Italy. Turkey being usually the first choice because it's cheaper and more familiar, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. How is this right now, it's much more cheaper. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh well, 
yeah, Corona changed the whole tourism kind of. Yeah, but yeah, Russia we are buying. I th I think we are buying the Russian uh, vaccine as well. The Chinese and Russian combined. Oh my god! So, I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so yeah, sorry. We, we may we may become like the Turkish Shevchenkos basically <laughs> with the vaccine. Oh my god! I'm genuinely so so sorry. <laughs> it's scary. It's scary. But like, what yeah. people think about that? I, I doubt mean, anybody will be like, "Oh yeah, please give me a Russian vaccine." Sure, sure. It was like yeah, the, the, the Russian the, soldiers, uh, but yeah. The, the Russian the Russian vaccine is not uh, the major issue right now the chinese vaccine is i think that they still haven't bought the russian or as much as they did from the chinese but still like the chinese vaccine is also like uh not that trustable why not feature oh, yeah. vaccine like it's already slowly but surely being available in europe and actually like BioNTech's um co-founders are turkish immigrants to germany so mm -hmm, exactly like they are on. like in the in in Turkish media, they're trying to put it as if it's a win for Turkey in a way um, that is not realistic at all. I mean, one was born in Germany, one went to Germany like when he was four years old. They were raised in Germany. They got their diplomas from German universities. They established their companies uh, in Germany. And probably if they were all this time in, in Turkey, they were facing like scholars right now in turkey they're they're not free at all yeah but academia be, is quite problem problematic and all it that, can so. be counted as a win for pro immigration sentiment though i actually wrote a piece about this like in uh, in raw news like king's College's yeah. uh newspaper it's a it's a huge blow like on the anti-rhetoric anti-immigrant rhetoric that is being like uh that is inclining all over the world mm -hmm. it really is Definitely. That's great. Yeah, future vaccine might, might be inaccessible and expensive too. But we're in yeah. a healthcare crisis. I'm just like trying to impl um, implement all the pharmacology knowledge I know, the big pharma stuff that we studied, like trying to figure out. Um, so, you know, TRIPS agreement, which is like uh, basically a thing that a document that controls trade, including pharmaceuticals. Yeah, like there are some articles that say that if uh, a country or world basically in a medical emergency, it will be like allowed, you will be able to produce generics without uh, asking for permission from um, permit holder, from patent holder. Yeah, and I feel like like you, you might as well I do think that. That's the no? case. Yeah, and, and Turkey like has uh, potentially uh, labs and all the resource like infrastructure to make yes. your own stuff. Yeah, like you produce a lot of stuff for the world, a yeah. great deal of stuff. Like why not? Yeah, the and I think Pfizer, Pfizer has a uh, has also like a, I mean a workplace. I'm not sure if it's a factory or it's a it's a lab, uh, but like in Turkey in in Istanbul. There's a huge Pfizer uh, establishment mm -hmm. as well. So, but they are buying it from China. Just with all this, and you still buy it from China and Russia. Actually, 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 it it sums up um, the foreign policy legacy of Erdogan. Because when he uh, got into power, he he was like from for Westerners, he was the example of democracy and Islam co co uh, can go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And Turkey was an example of this. 
And then 20 years later, we are seeing a Turkey discussing leaving NATO, discussing stopping to try to enter uh, the European Union. So we can see the shift uh, in, in the foreign policy views, uh, basically, of the government as well. Mm-hmm. Vaccines are always political. <laughs> I think we should just have a Latvian vaccine. I agreed, but what? <laughs> <laughs> like we got the capacity for that <laughs> with our uh, university and uh, academic funding that we've had for the last 30 years. Well, maybe that way people will finally learn what Latvia truly is and where it even is, you know. But uh, going back to Turkey, there's this um, issue that we discussed in previous episode. We talked about trauma and the glory of Latvia. We kind of mentioned trauma and the glory of Russia. So we want to make it like a um, reappearing question for our guests. What would you call the trauma and glory of Turkish nation, in your opinion? Like, what would you consider? The trauma and the glory. Trauma beyond the the gun. <laughs> mm. I think both the trauma and the glory is the same thing. It's the historical legacy that Turkey is based on. That's a hot because thing. When, yeah, because when you think about it, the Ottoman Empire uh, ruled a large part of the world for, for centuries. Uh, but they couldn't... Uh, like They couldn't... Uh, race with the industrialization of the West. They couldn't um, race with the all the new findings and all the new science, technology, and all that. And the decline started. And then the modern Turkey was established, basically. A much smaller uh, country than the Ottoman Empire, but an independent, mm-hmm. modern, secular, trying-to-be-secular nation, we can say. Um, it's... I think it's both a glory to have this historical past. Uh, I mean, for instance, you have the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, mm-hmm. right? That's 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 a quite um, that's a quite big story for a nation, uh, which is majority Muslim. Mm-hmm. Um, and the trauma is because of this historical past. Um, it's quite hard to maintain a realistic perspective on on what's going on around the world and what's going on in Turkey as well. So what I mean by that is, I mean, right now, Erdogan is trying to make him make himself a brand of um, this political Islam, the leader of the Muslim world and all this. And it's historically, it has the roots in the Ottoman Empire as well. Mm-hmm. It has the roots in the, the, the history that we glorify. And, but when it doesn't match the reality of the day, when it doesn't match mm-hmm. the reality of the modernity, it becomes a trauma for a whole nation. That's a truly interesting take. I didn't expect that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I expected think... something else. That's a nice answer. Yeah, I think it's also you know being modern country when you have when you used to be an empire. It's it's a whole different 
dynamic compared to countries that like just got uh, liberated under like that used to be parts of empire not the empire themselves i don't know if i make sense saying this um but yeah. yeah actually actually it does i think um john major the former prime minister of uk gave a speech uh, a month ago or something like that about brexit and where the country is going and all this that we are sick to discuss uh, in the uk but I think he said an important thing. He he recognized that Britain is no longer the empire um, that the country wants to glorify, rightfully or wrongfully. But he he gave away a realistic a realistic perspective on where the country is right now, the population, the technology, the economy, the military, and all this. It it basically shows that the UK is not a hegemon anymore right and it's quite hard to understand this quite hard to say this quite hard to um maintain this realistic perspective uh but i think like most of the countries that have this empire the past uh of empire uh is struggling uh with this historical trauma Mm -hmm. and glory Mm -hmm. at the same time this is the reality check that so many post-empires truly need to like yeah. break away from the history and realize that it's over, it's time to move on. Uh, but I mean, also, also the, the, the fact is, the fact is, um, Erdogan talks about uh, this big Turkey idea, Turkey being big, really big, and all that. Uh, but the 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 the, the symbols uh, he uses and the policies he makes is not from this century. Like being big in this century doesn't mean having the this glorifying army. It's it's a good thing to have a uh, mm-hmm. like powerful army, okay. But the, the being big means inventing the vaccine, inventing the technologies that will prevent a huge uh, climate catastrophe, let's say, or uh, having new ideas about like decreasing the inequality, the universal inequality. We are see, we are witnessing mm-hmm. right now. All those things right now makes a country big, in my opinion. And all those things are not even in the scope uh, of those who are trying to make a case for being this big country, being this big thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, priorities changed. Reality changed. Yeah. For sure. Are you tired? <laughs> I am. <laughs> <laughs> I see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't don't want to push you no further. Yeah, uh, there's actually like there's so much more to discuss, but uh, yeah, we will leave it for other times and for everything. the next one. Uh, yeah, my my tiredness comes from the glory and the trauma of all those things that we discussed. I'm so tired <laughs> of history. No, fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Like it's also not easy subjects to talk about. Um, you know, yeah, avoiding not. some words to be able to return to your country after, but then also expressing. I haven't it. done that. Okay. I haven't done that. I do that consistently. <laughs> I need I, to say. I, I'm not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> Even though it's May, May, I emphasize, uh, be the reality as well. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Have you but, ever but let feared? Me, let, me, yeah. let, me also, let me also make this point. The realistic way of uh, going against those populist regimes 
is not, in my opinion, facing them with the with the radical uh, opposition they might deserve. Uh, but it's to go against them with the with the realism uh, that they lack. So I think avoiding those words actually may be quite useful. <laughs> That's another hot take. Okay, fair yeah. enough, I agree. Yeah. But I wish to use them. Yeah, yeah, sometimes. Well, maybe in uh, like 10 years or something, the situation yeah. will change. Maybe 20 years, maybe after we die, who knows? I don't know how positive mm-hmm. and optimistic we shall be here. <laughs> let's, let's, let's not talk about that long term. I mean, as Kane said, like in the long term, we are all dead. <laughs> uh, yeah, considering uh, climate change, maybe it will be much sooner than we think it is. Okay, that's pessimistic. I'm sorry, but yeah. <laughs> have you yeah. seen uh, that artistic project? I think it was in New York. Some artist put a timer on a skyscraper mm-hmm. in New York. It was basically like saying seven years and something. It basically counts. I think it's still there. I need to check it. I think like, that's horrible. To remind, to remind people how much time they, it is left till all the, you know, catastrophe, like uh, climate change is irreversible and we're like in this constant state of climate catastrophe yeah so i got to think about it it gives me this anxiety like ah not much time left 10 years from now what let's let's add this i don't think pessimism is um the right way to mobilize people around the issue functional it's not constructive i agree it's not um yeah but you you called uh, your country melancholic in your stories so I mean, yeah. I would say Russians are also pretty melancholic, so it is only a natural state for us, isn't it? To be a little bit melancholic about things. <laughs> I think the melancholy comes from not the spirit of the nation, but I think it comes from... What nation um, is going through. Yeah, what nation is going through. Now, just as I was listening to you guys discuss this melancholy topic, I was like remembering how particular listeners told us, guys, you're a little bit pessimistic in your Wait, podcast. Wait, did somebody actually say that? Not just somebody, some people. Okay, <laughs> but this episode is more optimistic, I think. This I mean, I, I'm trying like really hard to be optimistic. <laughs> Thank you so much, Darren. Yeah, You're the one who brought all the positive spirit to the podcast. Yeah, I, my beliefs in, uh, I don't know, Bright Future is reinstalled, I believe, okay. once again. Yeah. yeah. No, Jane, thank you change, so much. We, we are the change we seek. Oh, that's deep. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's deep, and that's Obama's rhetoric, so I steal it. <laughs> Okay, thank you so much, Darren, for being here today. Thank you. I thank you for having me. And I will link uh, some of Darren's articles in our bio and also his Instagram and Twitter if you want to read up more on what he's doing. And of course, see you next time.